Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Maybe we don't know. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Abby Covert. Abby is an information architect, writer, community organizer, and all-around awesome human. Abby served as the president of the IA Institute, co-chair of the IA Summit, and executive producer of IDEA. She's a founding faculty member of SVA's Products of Design Program, Design Operations Summit, and Advancing Research Conference. She invented World IA Day, bringing IA education to thousands in local communities annually. Abby wrote How to Make Sense of Any Mess, a book teaching IA to everybody. I first met Abby in 2018 at the IA Summit in Chicago, when she was a curator of the poster session and I was lucky enough to be one of the presenters. Ever since the time she published How to Make Sense of Any Mess, I've always been impressed by Abby's intelligence, caring, and commitment to community, so it was a pleasure to have her join me on the show. Abby shares her journey about becoming an IA, starting with the early influence of her grandfather, her teaching at Parsons, and creating and curating some phenomenal IA conferences, including Creating World IA Day. We explore Abby's process and approach for her next book focused on diagrammatic technique. We mix it up on the importance of admitting we don't know and how we can make sense of information messes, and we dig deep into how we might confront the mind monsters that emerge from the fertile grounds of human and information messes. I appreciate Abby's perspective on time and how to better manage time and task. And for those keeping track, this is a third episode to reference Richard Saul Werman. It was an honor having Abby join me on the show. When you're done with this episode, please check out Abby's World IA Day talk, which is linked in the show description. I'd like to thank Abby for her time, perspective, and contributions to the IA community, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Abby Covert, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, IA and IA. Um, so my name is Abby Covert. I am an author and an information architect living in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, a couple years ago, I wrote a book called How to Make Sense of Any Mess, which is says a lot about, I guess, my work in general. Um, so I guess my, my main thing is trying to make information architecture as accessible and practical to everyday people as absolutely possible. Um, so I've done some teaching. I taught at uh, the School of Visual Arts in New York City and Parsons before that. I also invented an event called World Information Architecture Day, which is now in its 10th year and serves, gosh, I think almost 50 locations <laughs> every year. Um, and I'm really active in the IA community. So I've, I've been a president of the Information Architecture Institute, chair at the IA Summit, um, and a, a list of other conferences and events that I've had the pleasure of being a part of raising communities around. So yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's that's me. 
Thank you so much. So how did you become interested in information architecture? Oh, man. So this is such an interesting question. Um, I feel like I I learned the answer to it way later in my life than I expected to. Um, so it turns out that my grandfather was an information architect um, by all means and methods, but not by that name. And so that's kind of neat. He uh, he worked in the military. So he had a, a long lifetime of military service in the Navy. And he worked himself up from being a sailor to working in all the offices. And his main drive in the Navy was being one of the primary folks that helped them sort out the complexity of moving from paper to punch cards. Um, and so he actually wrote a book about his life called The, Ma the Maverick Sailor. Um, he was also an illustrator. He wanted to be a cartoonist. And um, if you look into my work, you will definitely see that influence. So yeah, I kind of, I learned in my like early twenties as I started to get into my university life and then my early working career, I just learned that we had so much in common in terms of what we did. Um, so I guess I was kind of always exposed to information architecture and sort of the ideas of making sense of things from a very, very early age through my family. Um, but then in school, I really came to it through graphic design um, and specifically through typography and layout design. Um, so when I went to my undergraduate, like first day design school, um, I thought that I was going to do newspaper and magazine layout. Um, and I don't think that information architecture is all that far afield from that when I think about it now. Um, but ultimately, I ended up in a multimedia program that kind of puts me in the, the, the middle generation of those digitally educated, I suppose. We don't really use that word anymore. Um, and then in my early working life as a freelancer, I ran into the term information architect like as a job after learning about information architecture in print school. Um, from a design perspective, and then thinking about it from like a digital sense, but then coming out of school and seeing like this whole community of people doing that and thinking about that and practicing that for digital spaces, that just was fascinating to me. So I was lucky enough to, to find myself in a junior IA position and kind of been learning and growing my skills from there. Thank you. Uh, so the work that you do, I'm a big fan of of your work and how to how to make sense of any mess is uh, for me from a, a design and innovation perspective is such a helpful helpful book. Uh, is it all right if I I dig in on a a couple questions about some of some of the steps in there? Please, please do. I love that. <laughs> Uh, I, I and and not not like a quiz show, but uh, one one of the things that I really appreciate, even the framing of your book was, uh, if I'm getting this right, right, messes are a combination of information and people. Yeah, <laughs> Could, and and I think that is so it's so well said. But do do you mind what went into it? It's such an it's such a clear, concise sentence. But what came into your how your framing? Like, how did you get there? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, it really came down to the audience. So um, to step, t take a step back in answering your question, you really have to think about like, why, why did I write the book that I, that I wrote? And the reason was because I was a designer who learned about information architecture in print design um, and had kind of thought about it as being an aspect of just layout. And as an information architect, I learned that it's much more than that. It's much more about cognition. It's about the way people understand things. It's about creating places made of information. And that just like really blew my mind as an early practitioner. But then when I went to go look for that insight in a form that you could give to an undergraduate design student, it just doesn't exist. I mean, there were, there were really big books I could give them on the magnitude of topics that you'd have to go to to get to that crystal thing. 
So basically I decided when I got the opportunity to teach at Parsons, I was an adjunct professor teaching a night class to kids that like, they literally had to choose between me and like basket weaving or something like very literally. So it, it was like very low stakes to them, but they were coming from all of these backgrounds, you know, fashion and architecture and print design and digital design. And so they had this thing that was in common, but it didn't really have like, um, it didn't have a villain, <laughs> you know, like what's the right villain. Um, and so I started to, to write around this concept of everyone sharing this sort of like chaotic reality and these like things they have to make sense of. And as I brought, um, you know, other people into my process and I talked to more students and more collaborators about my work, the word mess started to come up. Um, and ultimately I think that when I decided that I needed to reach a really low grade level, a lot of words kind of chose away from themselves. It was like, well, I can't really, you're not going to teach the word chaos um, below like probably like a 10th or 11th grade reading level. It's just a little esoteric. So when you get down to like, okay, I'm going to write this for a sixth grade reading level, um, which kind of blows a lot of people's minds given the technical aspect that information architecture feels like it comes from. I wasn't left with a lot of words to choose from. And mess is one of those things that like, God, we get that one really early, you know? Like I have a two-year-old and he already knows the concept of mess. So I knew that it was something easy to grasp. Um, and it also just felt really like every day, like a mess doesn't feel impossible. It just feels annoying. <laughs> and I want people to like have that um, permission to like make sense of those big gnarly things because they're not impossible. They're just annoying. Right, and if I'm remembering this correctly from the book too, there was the notion that we probably spend more energy worrying about the mess, uh, observing the mess, uh, than actually getting in and trying to make sense or, or, or clean up the mess. Yeah, no, I have this, this whole idea of mind monsters. Um, it's just, I'm, I've become mildly obsessed with this metaphor where like, it feels like as you consider the thing that you're trying to make sense of, it gets bigger. And the more time you put towards thinking about it instead of doing something about it, the bigger and more impossible it seems. And I feel like I, I've been on a lot of teams, I've consulted for a lot of teams, and I've kind of observed a lot of teams that have these mind monsters that are in the way. It's like, well, you know, we should be able to do that, but eh, tackling that part's gonna be so much, you know? And then when they finally like sit down and get the time and the permission and the resources lined up to do it, the work kind of starts to do itself, you know? <laughs> so we're like, wait, what was the monster we were all so afraid of? Um, and it's not always like that, but it does feel like a lot of times it, it is like that. People just need the the push. You know, I like to say that messes grow with time. And it's like, yeah, mess plus time is messier. <laughs> That's like for sure. <laughs> right, it's it's as if it gains interest, right? It's, yeah, it's continuing it to grow. Yeah, it has compound interest of, of messiness. Everybody that hasn't like, you know, done their dishes that one time in the cycle you normally do knows what I'm talking about. It's like, it doesn't stop just because you didn't get to it that one time. Oh yes. Especially in pandemic times when so many meals are at home now, we, we, we notice I know. <laughs> the mess like, piling really? up. Is this adulting deciding what to eat three times a day forever? <laughs> Ugh, I don't want it. <laughs> so I, one of the things I, I really appreciate just more more so now talking to you about the book and and the intentionality about the the sixth grade reading level is um i i love 
design. I love language. And I think so often, though, we see getting caught up in in trying to to show everybody how smart we are by oh. some of the language we we choose and yeah. use. And and yet I'm I'm struck at how much I, I love the clarity of your book. And I think some of that is because you're using clear language as well. But uh, from somebody steeped in, in information and architecture design communities, is it a, a, a challenge to uh, put your work forth in in a more accessible yeah, language? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say like that it is the challenge, right? I feel like um, I, I've kind of got this unique position in, in my life where I have access to a lot of the people that are doing the thinking and the, the writing at like the academic level in our field. Um, and that's amazing because it gives me sort of like this inside look. Um, but I also, I think, see how those things can be lost on the generation that's trying to practice them or the, uh, the folks that are trying to like make a paycheck on those skills. And so I feel like there's a real white space there, not just for me, but for lots of people to kind of do that translation work. Like right now I'm, I'm sort of distracting myself by making um, a, a kid's book version of, of my work. And it's, it's really like interesting to get like that grade level and then just ask yourself like, could I, could I take it more simple? Could I get it more simple? And you really start to lose a lot of the words that you feel the need to kind of hide behind sometimes, you know? And I, I definitely find that that's not just the truth with, with writing about information architecture, but I think it's about practicing it too. Like when I first started practicing information architecture, I think there was a sense in, in me, and maybe this is a sense in a lot of young people that you have to like know all the answers because you're getting a paycheck for the thing. <laughs> and, and in reality, you don't actually need to know all the answers. You need to know really good questions um, and you need to be willing to know when you don't know something um, but going through it, like pretending like you do know all of the answers kind of becomes its own, its own problem. So I don't know, I feel like with grade level, it really challenged me to make sure that what I was saying was really true and that it wasn't hiding behind a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and there's actually a really interesting concept that I cover in the book called linguistic insecurity, which is probably the, one of the higher grade level terms in the book. And I, I define anything that, um, that like would go above the sixth grade reading level at like a face value. And that's one of them. But I think that the reason that it ended up in there is because it in itself makes the case for why I wrote to that level. Because there's, um, there's this intrinsic belonging or not belonging that language can create. And the grade level is such, um, it's such a hurdle for so many people to leap over. So if you remove that hurdle, you watch all of the people be able to just come into the space. And so that's, to me, that's much more interesting than keeping the barrier up. Um, but then there's like, you know, the, the, when does it, when's it too much? And is the watering down good? And you know, all of that stuff comes along with it, but I think it's all about balance and like, yeah, everything, but nothing too much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And so, yeah, going back to kind of the, the seven steps of how to make sense of, of any mess mm -hmm. and, and I've, I've applied these in, in multiple settings uh, multiple projects that are usually kind of brand strategy uh, or innovation, right? It's it, it's already at a messy edge, and we're really trying to make sense of what are we really playing with, what are we trying to do, and and so I I love it. Uh, number five is measure the distance. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about what it means to measure the distance? Yes, absolutely. 
Oh, okay. I'm so glad that you asked that question. That that is a step that so many people I feel like brush over. Um, but it, it's the one that really changed things for me and and for a lot of my students. This is the the annoying light bulb. Um, when we think about architecture and creating things, just bringing things into existence, we can kind of get this like egoist god complex about all the things we could do we should do are possible the the big opportunity you know the whole thing um that's not always the healthiest thing when you're trying to make progress on the actual thing and we can get stuck in that like making it so big we never take an action on it so it's almost like by the time you get that far into figuring things out you've got to take a step to say okay i've kind of convinced myself i have a direction that i want to go here exactly how far am I going to be walking in this direction to actually get there? Because everybody has a reality, right? You all have this time that you've bound this thing that you're working on with, right? Like if it's cleaning out my pantry, I'm not going to want to take a month to do it. You know, if it's redesigning a corporate intranet system, you know, maybe a month or two doesn't sound so bad for that part of it that I'm doing architecture on. So it, it all comes into like thinking about your resources and your time scale and your reality. But so often people kind of like put the blinders on in the beginning of the process. They're like, come up with the big idea, come up with the opportunity. And then they're kind of left with this like, oh God, we don't have that much time. We don't really have any resources. And like now all of your ideas start to crumble. Whereas if you take the moment to step back and say, okay, how far am I actually from the finish point that I thought was the finish point? You start to have to have these like checkpoints in between where you are and that, that bigger thing. And it gives you that reality check. And like with reality comes the ability to move forward. I mean, people getting stuck in what could happen or what should happen is it's a really, really disastrous place, especially for teams to get stuck. Um, so if you're working on something with yourself, that distance piece is super critical. But if you're working on it with other people, just understanding the difference of how long people think um, things will take, <laughs> you know, like across different types of roles and things, it can be fascinating to find out like, oh, gosh, this thing that I thought engineering would take a few weeks on is going to take them six months. Um, so having that moment where you step back and really assess things uh, from a distance standpoint, I think is, it's critical to getting to that place where you could actually make decisions. Thanks. Yeah, because I I think too with with teams and uh, it 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 goes with you know overlaps with some of the other components you have right. We identify the state intent, but really getting it out there on the table for everybody to react to. Where sometimes I think um, as as teams and organizations, we we actually don't have the hard conversations about where are we where are we at right now. Yeah. And, and being intentional about okay, what what is that goal or what's that what's that off in the distance? We want to get there because, uh, yeah. and I, this this is where it can be difficult conversations, right? An organization, give me give me an answer that isn't a cliche, right? I don't want to hear just like best practice or uh, we're we're gonna have we're gonna have a sticky experience. Right? It's like right. let's we'll let's do it in really, phase two, right? What are we really trying yeah. to accomplish, and why is that important? And how far are we from that? Now let's start talking about then ways that we might get there. And, and I think one, when the team has understanding of the intent and a shared understanding too, then, then we can move faster. But it's uh, measuring the distance was, was, was one of the things that really stood out. And then your next, next step is playing with structure. Uh, if you don't mind, why is playing with structure important? 
Yeah. So when you have gotten to that reckoning place of measuring the distance, spoiler alert, sometimes <laughs> things are a lot different than what you actually thought you were doing. Um, and now you're kind of at this critical place of like, you got to make decisions and the decisions that you have to make at this point are structural. But the worst thing that I think you can do is go in and start making the structure that was the first thing that came to mind when you were in that vulnerable moment of change. Like, oh gosh, I just found out that I can't do this huge thing that I wanna do. So I'm gonna make the first thing that comes to mind. I'm telling you right now, that's most likely not the thing that you should be making or spending time on. But a lot of teams do that. They go into like ambulance mode of like, oh gosh, we can't do what we were gonna do. We're gonna do this instead. And often the this instead is like a, a buy something or an integrate with something or a copy a thing that another thing did. Like it's, it's an easy solution. And so what I posit in the book is that this is a time for you to step back and play with the structure and come up on paper with many structures that you might use and really challenge yourself with this new set of criteria around what you actually have to work with. What are the many ways that we might do this? And like most of the time when working with people or by yourself, there's something that emerges in that process that is different than what you initially thought would serve your needs. And it's usually the smarter thing. I also find that it's usually the easier thing. Like it's got that like oxum's razor, like, yeah, it was just the most obvious thing, but I didn't think of it first. Because obvious isn't always um, obvious isn't always quick, you know. I think we think it is, but it's not. Yeah, that's funny. There's a, a friend of mine who I just I think so highly of as a designer. He told me one time when we were working on a project, we had been banging our head against the wall working on stuff, and then it seemed like we came to an obvious solution. Like it's like ah, oh, it was there all right, but it's it's like we had to go through it. But then it's that's like. Right. That there's something almost on the the practitioner side for me, the the gut feeling is, oh, of course, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Richard Saul Worman uh, refers to that as the journey from not knowing to knowing, and it's it's magical. Like yeah. you have because you have to admit at the end of the journey when you find the knowing, you have to admit that you didn't know, and that's such a vulnerable position for people that think they're experts to be constantly, you know, and like. Ugh, so many people go in with that, like, what you need is this thing. And it's just to hide behind tonight, not want to admit that you don't really know what their problem is yet. And you don't really know how you could fix it, but you know that you're smart and you might be able to help. Um, yeah. Anyways, it's. Yeah, it's no, that's that's right. Cause, you know, a, a space that fascinates me is when teams and organizations uh, misdiagnose uh, complex mm -hmm. problems for something that's either complicated or tame. Right? And. <laughs> And that really, or in their control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the and the strange behavior too of uh, like basically, I'm going to make sure this solution works, or kind of this ego driven rather than, hey, maybe we don't know, and maybe we don't know, maybe we're all on the journey to yeah. knowing together, and when we get there, we're going to go, wow, what a cool journey to get there, you know, uh, but instead, it's like everybody walking down this path knowing they don't know and going, no, 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 I know where we're going. I know where we're going. I totally know where we're going, you guys. And I like, totally that's know. distracting. That's really distracting. It's like, think about it. You just got people wandering and random. It's like an Easter egg hunt. Uh, so uh, I ask a lot of why questions and again, not, not as like uh, kind of to be provocative, but why World IA Day? Why would you spend time yeah. to, like talk to me about why you you'll you put so much energy and passion into creating World IA Day? 
Yeah. So um, World IA Day was so this is such a it's such a weird coincidence of coincidences that I found myself in this weird position in 2010 where I was I was running um, as an executive producer. I was running the idea conference for the Information Architecture Institute after working on it for several years as a, a volunteer. I was like doing the the big volunteer job of organizing all the volunteers. You've done this job, Matt. You know, it's a lot of work. Um, and people, why do you do it? You do it for the love of the for the love of the thing, for the love of the field, for the for the ducklings that come up beneath your class to have the things that we had when we were coming up through, right? So I'm working on this event, and I'm seeing this global organization, the Information Architecture Institute. Only like I think fifty percent or less of which was American. Um, and then we had this event that was very singularly North American focused. It was either in Canada or the US in a major metropolitan area that was expensive to travel to, expensive to stay at for a couple of nights in a downtown location, and just a, an, a prohibitive educational experience. And so when you looked at who was attending this event, it was the same two to 300 people who had the same kind of levels of, of work in the same fields. Um, and it was just kind of a repetitive show for those folks. And for those, for that audience, it was a very valuable experience. I loved that conference. Many people loved that conference. Some of my favorite talks from that, like, you know, couple year period of it running came from that conference. Um, but when you looked at what the organization was doing to service it, it was the primary activity of the year of the Institute. It was where most of the budget came from. So it was where most of the budget went to. It was where most of the decision making was made because it was all about marketing that event primarily to get people to come to it and look at it as a place to speak and, and attend. So it was very much a North American centric activity all the way through. Um, and then we saw very little resource outside of the U.S. So you saw um, EuroIA emerged in that space to sort of meet that need in Europe. Um, you saw local groups starting to emerge. And at the same time, you saw IXDA really taking that idea of a local community um, and making something of it. And so Dan Klein and I in 2010, we were shooting the shit in my kitchen. And I don't know what it was, Matt. I was just like doing too many things. And I just was like, why am I doing all of these things for the betterment of the IA community when really it's for the betterment of this like two to 300 person group in North America? And I know most of them by name at this point. So it, right. it doesn't feel like we're growing a thing, we're making a thing. And our membership numbers were, you know, not, not going up for sure. They were kind of like plateaued. And so this idea came uh, of like, what if we didn't do just one annual conference? What if we did like a lot of annual events? And what if they were more accessible in that they were free? And what if we used it to build the idea of information architecture outside of the field of information architecture, bring new people in, new voices, new organizers, um, new locations, new languages? Um, and so at the time I was kind of in between running what then became the last version of IDEA in October and then working on the next IA summit in the spring. And I wrote a email to the organizing committee of both events. And I basically argued that there was no need for two North American centric information architecture annual conferences for the same two to 300 people. Um, and that I would really like the Institute to consider doing something different. And I, pr I proposed something called idea streams 
<laughs> which is a terrible name. But then um, we were like getting a cease and desist from another event called Idea around the same time anyways. So we had to come up with a new name. So we totally stole it from World Usability Day. And we we're just like, well, World Information Architecture Day, boom. And so World IA Day was born. Um, Andrea and his team at the IAI did a great job uh, producing the first couple of years. Then I took it over um, as president after that for a few years. And then Dan took it. Um, and then it's since gone on to be a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful event. I, I really, really enjoy being involved with it. And um, yeah, I think uh, Grace and uh, Andrea are doing a wonderful job. Yeah, thank you. It is, I think it's such a powerful day on, on many levels. So I, I, want, I appreciate you making that happen. And as you were describing the same two to 300, one of the things that was hitting me too is when we have leaders in an organization that we send, we keep sending like the, the same level of leadership off to training. Yeah. And then we want and expect more out of basically yeah. the worker bees for lack of a better term, but, but it's, it's, they're not getting a lot of direction. So then having something that basically takes place on a Saturday, right. Mm -hmm. Is, is around, around the world has, has both global and local connections. I just, I find it really powerful from a, a skill building and, um, I've I've presented at a, a couple local uh, World IA Day events in the past, and one of the things I, I always try to remember to say is thank you to everybody showing up. I, I just love people that are committed to expanding their knowledge and, and building their skill base and doing it on a weekend, right? Like take, taking what could be, uh, you know, time away from family, friends, or a nap. Right? <laughs> yeah. But there yeah, and there's so many powerful talks though that are presented. Yeah. So it's yeah, just thank you for for making that event happen. Yeah, I feel honestly for an idea that I had in my kitchen, I feel like I've done very little to be honest. Like with when I look at the effort that is put in, not just by the global team but the local teams every year. I mean, some of these local organizers have been working with their same volunteer team for a decade of just producing highly produced free education in their local environment. It's just, it gives me goosebumps to think about it really does. And like, that's when, when Dan and I, um, you know, really put our, our hearts into like, what's the why of this? It really was about the local organizers is like, I had such a growth experience getting involved in the community organization part of the IA field. And I wanted more people to have that, but like, not everybody can be hooked into the, the global network of the volunteer organizations. Like that's not an opportunity that's open to everyone. Um, it is open to lots of people. If anyone out there is listening and looking for things like put yourself out there, there's lots to do. Um, but there's a lot of value to be found in your local organization. And when you have like, you know, your company has space or you've got a talk that you want people to hear, like world IA is just a very, uh, it has a low bar of entry to get really good content out to the world um, and a great network to support it. So yeah, I, I, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in, in my life. So. Thanks. Uh, so I want to go back to when you were teaching uh, and uh, so assuming you were living in New York city or were you delivering content online? I have done both. Um, when I started teaching at Parsons, I was living around the corner from there. Very, very convenient commute for a night class. Um, and then I moved on to SVA. I was teaching at the Products of Design master's program for a few years. And I actually ended up taking that remote. Um, so I was a, an early adopter to everything going on Zoom. And it, I did manage to hold on to that uh, for two years remotely. Um, and then when my son was born, I, I put teaching on the, the back burner temporarily. 
and teaching him letters and shapes and colors. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm curious, uh, and, and again, this just might be me projecting and and this is not a mat therapy session, I swear. Uh, But so, uh, you know, I teach leading innovation at, at the university of Iowa. And so it's just as an adjunct and, one of the things I struggle with is, uh, I think it goes back to maybe the way you were describing how to make sense of any mess is, here's this space I've been playing in for 25 years, yeah. and how can I distill it down to here's what is really important for you, and you don't, you don't need to know all of the reasons why we got here, but you still need to know some of the context, and just sometimes struggling with sometimes condensing a lifetime of <laughs> uh, applica- theory and application into something that is meaningful to students. And, and uh, I don't know how you approach that and if it was rewarding or challenging both. Hmm. I would say, hmm, I'm going to make it a math therapy session for a second. Matt, if you think that your job is to distill 25 years of your education and experience into an adjunct relationship with these students, you're going to be so disappointed in what ends up happening. Why would you do that? Like, that's, you know, like, I think, think about the goal. Like what, what is the actual goal? Because those students probably don't want that from you either. Like when they no, signed up, no. <laughs> like, listen to Matt Arnold tell me everything no. he's in 25 years and tried to distill it for what he thinks I need to know. You know, so yeah, I think like, I think it all comes down then when I'm teaching, like for me, it really came down to the users. Like with my Parsons students, they push me to think about grade level. With my SVA students, they push me to think about context because yeah. it's really challenging um, as, a, as a teacher because the medium was so different. So in that case, I was hired as an IA teacher, but my position in the program was to help them get their thesis like out the door. They were writing this thesis book. They had to do this like TED style presentation in front of their friends and family in the whole department on a big stage, like at a theater in downtown Manhattan and stuff. Like it was like this big moment for them, but they had to do all of these pieces to get there. And it all had this like architectural component to it. And so when I was teaching them, I really had to think about like, it is my job to teach them IA because they're going to have jobs as designers. And that's like a backbone skill that I want them to have. So I have to figure out how to get that as the through line of this experience, but I can't overwhelm them with like going on some sort of like adventure into the theory and nerdiness of IA that I'm in love with, right? Like that's not what they're here for. And that's more likely to just kind of glaze over and go, oh, Abby's off on one of her little rants. The one thing that I did was in that studio class, I had a, a once a week studio class, it was four hours. And I challenged myself to only talk for the first half hour, um, which is really hard because it relies on you being a really effective facilitator that makes it very clear to your students that you're not going to do the work for them. Right, but right. it also made it so I had to think really hard about like, what is the thing that I want them to know from my perspective going into this interaction that they're going to have with each other? And that changed kind of the, the framework of like what I thought I was there to do. And so I, I took every one of the, I used to call them my, my 20 minute sermons. So it'd be like 20 minutes of me talking at you and then 10 minutes to ask me questions before I set you off on your own to do the work and then come back and we have a discussion. And in that time, I really challenged myself to make sure that it was actionable. It was stuff that they actually would end up discussing with each other. 
Um, and then to ask them, you know, how did you, how confused were you? <laughs> I love, I love that model. So I'm abstracting it out too, to uh, a general model of sense making too, right? Is getting yeah. them to explore a wider system before I sit you out, <laughs> I'm going to give yeah. you a little bit of wayfinding, mm-hmm. but you're, you're going to have to go do this thing and you're going to have to experiment and then we'll find out how that went. Yes. Yes. That, I also, that's pretty I cool. Like I also like teaching the um, the theory after I give them the practice, which I don't know if all teachers um, buy into that. But like, for example, I when I'm teaching diagramming, I love to have people make a diagram, then teach them about diagrammatic technique because it lets them do it the way that they would have done it by default. Instead of the whole time you're talking about diagramming and diagrammatic technique, they're nodding and going, oh, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duh, that's obvious. Like, oh, was it obvious? Well, when you made a diagram at home and alone in your room with no guidance, this is what you did. And now we're where we are. So let's measure the distance. <laughs> like, yeah. how'd you do? Um, and it puts it puts people into a different kind of mindset. Um, it's delicate though. Like in that position, one thing I never do is critique them to death after asking them to do that. I just ask them to critique themselves. It's like, okay, so you made this thing here's here's some more information about making things like what you just made now what do you think and then they tell me what they would do differently <laughs> the next time and it's usually a hefty list of things oh the power of the socratic method when you can yeah. ask them questions and get them yeah. going oh beautiful yeah less talking and teaching that's what i think uh, want to dig in a little bit in in your approach, uh, this and I, I apologize because this question may sound weird because you already, it, this is about being stuck and getting unstuck. But then you also have like a step-by-step method for like how to make sense of any method, which you could just say, Matt, how I get unstuck is I just go through that. But do you ever feel feel stuck in 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 your craft? And and do you have tips or or, or ways that you you like to get unstuck? Absolutely. Um, I think everybody gets stuck. I hope everybody gets stuck. I, I tell myself on the days I get stuck that everybody gets stuck. So I want to believe that's true. Have you met anybody on this on this podcast that was like, no, I never get stuck? Not, Not yet. yet. Not yet. I never do. I want to talk to that person. I don't I don't believe it. Um, so when I'm stuck, there's a couple things. One, writing. Um, writing is a big thing for me and specifically like stream of conscious writing by hand. Um, I'm a big journaler and I journal every single day. And I've found that the days that I really, really, really don't want to do it are the days I really need to. Um, so I find that like being unstuck is a daily practice that I try to like prevent myself from getting too stuck by like working on it every day. So that's one point. Um, that still does not help me avoid being stuck. Like it just keeps me out of like craters that I have to like call on other people to help me get out of, you know what I mean? Um, but when I'm stuck, I find that doing something different can help a lot. Um, like walking away from the thing that you're doing to do something very, very different. I I've been struggling with a piece that I'm writing, um, for my new book about diagrams. And last week I was just like, you know what? I just, I'm not having fun anymore and I don't want to do this at this moment. So I'm going to stop. And I was walking around my office. I was like, what am I going to do? And I found this prototype of a children's book that I made like six years ago when I was like, probably like right after the book came out. Um, And yeah, I just was like, this is fun. I'm going to like look at this thing and start to to play with it. 
And then I was like, man, I, I'm going to remake this. Like, I remember when I made it, people were like, oh man, I'd love to have a copy of that. But it's so like precious. It's like this thing I made and cut out all this paper and it's like held together with like binder clips and all stuff. So I was like, I'm going to try to like challenge myself to make this a single sheet of paper and see if I can do it. (laughs) So I just, I just did that for like a day. Um, and then I still wasn't unstuck. And so I have, um, a a friend and, and colleague of mine, Bibiana Nunez, we've been working on some things together. And she was like, hey, I, I translated um, some stuff of, of yours. Like, you want to do something with it? I was like, yeah, sure. So I worked on a Spanish version of the heuristics poster that we're going to put out uh, probably later this month. So yeah, I'm just kind of like distracting with myself with things until I get back to wanting to do the thing I was doing. Um, you don't always have the like luxury to do that. So in the times when I don't have the luxury to do that, you have to kind of like force it, like take the walk, take a shower talk to somebody who's not involved in the thing that you're doing about the thing that you're doing. That happens for me like a lot. If I just talk to somebody who's like coming from a completely different place, a neighbor, a friend, my husband, my kid, my dog. Um, sometimes I can like unstick myself, you know, just trying yeah. to get it to them. Um, yeah. Getting, getting unstuck, man. That's like so much of being an adult. I, so I, I like uh, but you sometimes writing something or talking to somebody, it, it's just getting away from the thing itself just for a little bit. And it's almost, it's, to me, it feels like it's forcing you to synthesize things, yeah. right? And so, ah, okay, then you can come back to it. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm curious. I'm tr- like visuals too. Like I will often have like in the shower or on a, I'll be walking my dog or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll just have like, the vision of how the thing is. And then I'm like, oh, and it's not sitting at my desk, staring at a glass screen going like, oh, work harder. <laughs> that actually never works. That never has worked. Move, no. Pixel, move. Yeah. Oh, it just, it doesn't work like that. I, I want it to so badly sometimes <laughs> when, the, when the clock is ticking and you got to yep. But I also find that like as a creative person, I found that time management is just so, so important. Like I put myself through, um, about a year and a half of being really obsessed with how I use time to kind of like kickstart myself into this mindset of like not being such a workaholic and like having a division between life and work. And the time that I invested into that in myself has just really paid dividends. Like I, I'm able to like understand what tasks take in my creative brain. And I'm also able to understand when I can't predict what tasks will take in my creative brain and like know the difference. So I've sort of like got my um, my weeks and months set up that way now. So when when it comes to journaling, do you do that? Uh, is it is it a just making sure you get it done during the day, or is it more a ritual? Like this, is it like first? Is it almost like morning pages? First thing, morning pages. Yeah, big okay. fan, big fan of morning pages as a concept. I have really tiny handwriting, so I do I do give myself the grace of only doing one page, not two. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my husband and I have for, uh, gosh, that's probably about three or four years now, we've been like on and off morning page people. Um, and the last four or five months, we've been really consistent on it again. I just see such a huge difference in my like energy management throughout the day by having done it. You know, it's like, it's the difference of not carrying around a big bag of garbage from the day before you know, like all day, the next day. It's like, why would you do that? You have this notebook, you can just write it down and then you don't have to carry it around. That's great. So yeah, I, I feel like I haven't missed a day this year, which feels really good. Um, oh, that's awesome. 
and yeah, I, I really do recommend it. My husband stayed off of it for a really long time because he hates his handwriting and he can't reread what he wrote. And then I reminded him that it like says in morning pages that you shouldn't reread what you wrote. <laughs> and he was like, oh, great. Totally released from that. Um, so yeah, if you have terrible handwriting, journaling is even better for you than, than other people because you, you literally can't torture yourself with your own thoughts later on. It's great. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, on the, when, when writing and working on something too, is stepping away. One of the things that I, I just heard this weekend. Um, so, uh, do you know who Dave Hill is? Uh, comedian, musician, author, uh, also guest, of, guest of the podcast. Uh, but he, he was sharing advice that he had heard from Dick Cavett on writing and so dick cavett uh the way i understand it would set a timer mm -hmm. and when the timer's done he's done writing yeah. and even if it's mid-word and also what that would do when he comes back to something to have an idea and it might even go in a different direction but not trying to force the finish so yeah. just being a little bit more judicious about here's how i choose to spend my time and when it's done I'm done with it for, for the day. Yeah, no, I I've been, I've been really like, I'm a baby writer. Like I, I know that I, I wrote a book, but I'm writing another book. And now like, that's like, that's when you're a writer, you're like, oh gosh, I'm doing this again on purpose. Now I'm deciding I'm a writer and yeah, I'm like learning all of these things about the craft of writing. And so I've tried like some of these tricks that you, that you hear and read in books yeah. about writing. I think Stephen King also talks about like stopping mid sentence. Um, one thing that I've been doing for myself is I, I'm too much of a control freak to, to stop mid-sentence. That's just, I, I think I'd probably be up all night thinking about that unfinished sentence. That's just who I am. But what I have been doing is at the end of writing for the day, I write what I'm going to write about the next day. Like just in a sentence, like I'll, I'll like finish writing the paragraph I'm writing. And then I'll say, tomorrow I'm going to write about blah, 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 blah. And I just highlight it like in a different color. So it's like there. You're just kind of priming the pump for the yeah, next day. Yeah, and then day. I leave my computer all set up like that. So when I get up there in the morning, it's like, I got to get those words in. Because if I don't get my words in before noon, Matt, it doesn't yeah. happen. It just doesn't happen. And that's another thing I've learned is like, you got to put your stuff into the right buckets so that you don't waste your energy doing things that aren't best spent in that time. Like I could write this book after my kid goes to bed. I will not be as happy a writer if I do that. So I gotta, I gotta work another, another way. Well, yeah, my, uh, one of my kids is a freshman in high school and another one is in sixth grade. And yeah, what I, what I, if, if I was waiting for them to go to bed, right. It's, oh, especially, especially yeah. as taught babies and toddlers, yeah, no. Who knows when that is? No, and then you're like, I mean, I don't know about other parents, but I'm like a wet noodle by the end of the day with him. I'm just like, is bedtime for me too? <laughs> I make myself stay up past eight so that I'm not up at four in the morning, but you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one other related, similar though, to that, that ritual and pattern. Um, another piece of advice, I don't know if this will uh, work or, or but uh, Ethan Kanan, who is an author and also teaches at the workshop, uh, his his idea he he's he's not as strict as Dick Cavett, right? But it is you you don't have to go to bed with that idea finished, uh, and and it and for him it's the idea that you can start the day with moment it because yeah. he his and his his struggle is 
uh, getting started in the day. It's not the fin- it's the getting started. So I, I love your, your prompt to yourself. Yeah. Do you ever oh. thank yesterday, Abby, for, for that? Yeah, no, I, I do. I, I also write to a map and I did this for the first book too, but see, I have a map. Oh yes. I'm checking it off as I go. So I've got the structure. It actually, so this would be interesting since we were talking about the book. I yeah. struck the second book outline using the first book's advice. So the whole thing is structured in each chapter. It's structured with identifying the math, stating my intention, facing reality, choosing a direction, measuring the distance, playing the structure, and then preparing to adjust. And it's like going through that cycle in each of these topics. And I'm, I'm sort of playing with that for draft two, um, because after draft one, I, I wrote draft one as like a, a love letter to myself and 10 test readers about the book I wanted to write. And then I, I kind of wrote it like not stream of conscious because I, I edited through it a couple of times, but I wrote it without an architectural kind of concept. It just was sort of like, what's going to come out? And then I reverse engineered it after getting all of their feedback and I saw the shape of it. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm seeing the shape of this thing and looking at their feedback. I totally get why they're saying the things they're saying. Cause like, this is weird and you can move this over there and shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. And while I was going through it, I was like, man, it's almost like you're making sense of a mess over here. Man, I wish there was a book that told you how to do that step-by-step. Step. Oh, wait a second. I wrote that book. So I got it out and I was like, There's hey. something familiar here. Yeah, so I, yeah it started like, I started using my first book to make sense of my second. And then I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm in my office by myself too much, I think, probably. <laughs> so what is the what is the motivation to write the second book? Again, why? Yeah. And, and again, it's here, like me, it just sounds like, mental angst like yeah so so why so diagrammatic technique is the thing that did not make it into the first book and it's it's not that i had it and we cut it it's that i wrote the book and then a couple of people that reviewed it in the early days were like this is great and you know what it needs is it needs some examples of diagrams and frameworks that are common And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And that's where the pizza diagrams came from. So I have like these 10 example diagrams that are like kind of the the like main toolbox that you might need when starting to diagram, like types of diagrams that you might make. But what it didn't do is tell you how to actually make one. And so I had this this thing that's happened over the last seven years, running into readers and, and hearing people's reviews of the book where they're kind of like, this is great. I love the pizza diagrams. I wish I knew how to make a swim lane chart. I wish I knew how to make a block diagram. And I'm like, wish you knew how to make it. I'm giving you an example. And they're like, yeah, but there's like something between understanding the need for a diagram and actually producing one that makes sense to more than just you and your brain. Um, And then in teaching, I've just had this experience of seeing people come at diagrams, either from the like, I'm just presenting information and I'm being very like seemingly objective about it. It doesn't matter what it looks like, or they're coming at it from the design perspective where it's all like infographics and like pretty, pretty diagrams of data visualization that people are sort of like, oh, that's so cool. I don't exactly know what to do with it. Right. So it's like, those are the two camps when you look into diagram education that you're going to fall into is sort of like the systems diagrams or the infographics. Um, and I feel like there's this wonderful world in between that really sits very squarely in the space of information architecture and sense making, where it's like, well, we use these visuals that aren't the thing we're making, right? It, it's the map, not the territory. But the map's incredibly important because without a map, how the heck are we going to navigate this really complex territory? Right. So it does matter what the map looks like, but not in the ways that you might think. 
And it does matter how people think about it, but the design part is all wrapped up in that. Like people looking at an ugly systems diagram are less likely to understand the systems diagram. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I find it fascinating that like, there's sort of like these disparate camps of diagram knowledge, but it doesn't really seem like, like, when were you taught how to diagram that? When did we learn that? I don't remember. I missed that day. No, this is, yeah, this is so deeply fascinating to me too, because um, a lot of my professional interest has also been in, in knowledge management and mm -hmm. the ideas of also just tacit and explicit and for for good diagrammers right even knowing like oh this calls for this type and here's the intent and this is actually why we do these things and uh so so it makes so much sense to me now i wouldn't have been unprompted i wouldn't have been able to say this but what you said makes so much sense like when people come in to you saying those diagrams are super helpful and I need or want more where I'm almost assuming from your perspective, I, I already gave you the example. It, it, <laughs> yeah. But then realizing is, oh, there's this, yeah. there's this element in between that just as a practitioner, you knew what it called for. Yeah. And here's there's, how you do it. There's this um, kind of parallel that I've been drawing in my most recent uh, draft about how I, I wish that learning to diagram was more like learning to cook. Because I, I feel like, when you're learning to cook, there's all these recipes that you use to kind of get through the stage of not knowing enough about your medium and, and like the processes and the, the meta processes and like the outcomes that you can expect from different steps. Like you don't know all of that. So you, you follow these recipes like step by step and you measure everything. And then at a certain point, as you start to learn to cook, you realize you don't actually need to do all of the measuring just as exact. And you can actually get better results if you go on your own sometimes with like putting more or less of something or like doing something different because of another recipe you tried one time. And I feel like that's what I want people to feel like when it comes to diagramming. Cause I see a lot of like, learn this canvas, learn this methodology of facilitation using this framework, you know, or use this template that this tool provides to work through your thing. But in the cases that I see sense-making working the best, it's the times when people are making the objects of discourse that are for the discourse they're actually having. And trying to like bend your whim into somebody else's template is not always the way. But if all you have education-wise is use this recipe and you will succeed, you haven't learned how to cook, you're kind of out on a limb. So yeah, I'm trying, I'm positing that you can teach people to diagram like you can teach people how to cook, that if you take it from the technique and the process and the material sense, and then you give them some recipes that are meant to teach them different techniques and processes and materials, then you introduce them this whole new world where they feel inspired to combine and to make their own dishes as opposed to just like, you know, what they learn in the recipes. Oh, this is awesome. I'm, I'm so excited about about this work and because oh, you're it, making me excited about it see this is, how do you get unstuck you go on a podcast and you're <laughs> struggling to, to write the second or third chapter of <laughs> well yeah because you know there's so much power in the diagrams especially right like getting to visual language for collaboration i mean the the value of of good diagrams right and then i think we might have even have talked about this in the past and i i share this with my innovation students is that uh all models are wrong some oh, are useful yeah <laughs> but yeah. and so being able to understand what is it that we're trying to convey here 
and, mm-hmm. and that and being intentional, right? That's what's important. And then like once, once somebody like using your cooking analogy, once somebody knows, oh, that's actually just serving as a fat or that's an acid, right? I, yeah. then I know what I, I, I can substitute as well at, right. And then how their toolkit expands is, yeah, I love, I love your analogy. Well, then they can actually push the thing forward, right? We could get past just those 10 recipes or whatever. I mean, there's thousands of recipes for diagrams, but right. it's, yeah, the, the best use of them is not just copy paste. It's like, make it and make it your own. Do you have a favorite diagram? Or is it? <laughs> I mean, I love them all. They're all my. <laughs> right. um, I would say the ones that I continually am blown away by the power of are swim lane diagrams and block diagrams. Um, swim lane diagrams because so many processes involve handoffs between parties. And when you make systems diagrams, you're often not in the position of actually looking at it from a user's perspective. You're just looking right. at it. From- technical perspective. So I find that if you take sort of like the flow diagram methodology and then apply it to the swim lane diagram concept of, of mapping people, it can be really interesting. Um, and then block diagrams, block diagrams are just like, they're the matryoshkas of diagrams. It's like, what is this thing made of? It's made of these smaller things and understanding the relationship between those things. I've just seen teams, just their minds go, what? When you just relate simple boxes to each other in ways they can understand, they go, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that was actually a part of that. And I'm like, yep, turns out it's a part of it. Changes your whole model on like everything you're thinking about, right? And you're like, yes, thank you for putting that square inside of that other square. Ah, yeah, diagrams are magical. I love them. Abby, one of the and one of the last things I, I try to cover with guests is just the notion of advice, uh, either like ad- good advice you've had from mentors or uh, stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. When we give advice, we're talking to our younger self, like stuff oh, you wish you would have had. Um, and so I'm curious about your advice. And one thing I'll just tell the listeners right now is if they go to your World IA Day talk from this year, I ah. thought it would... There was a lot of advice, a lot of vulnerability, and I, I think it was a powerful talk. Uh, that's something that I think folks should should check out, especially if they're interested in uh, information architecture. But what might be some either good advice you received or uh, wish you would have received? Hmm. Okay. I'm going to do a good callback to the World IA Day talk because I would say the thing that I learned in writing that talk is the power of introspection. On, on one's like view of, of your own practice. Um, and so I would say, yeah, get good advice to as early as you possibly can in practicing whatever you're practicing. Um, know what you're putting into it and not just like your skills, but like your background and your experience and your uh, flaws and your, your pitfalls, like what baggage are you bringing into it? Um, and then don't be surprised when in hindsight, you see it all over everything you've ever made. Um, so yeah, if you can like become more aware of yourself earlier, like I don't, in my case, um, you know, I've been, I've been going to therapy for over 10 years now. I don't know that I was ready before then (laughs) to really do it. Although I would just say like, yeah, like the level of introspection that, that therapy and like coaching can provide is just really, it's just, it's unbelievable. Um, it can really change people. And I've seen that not just with myself, but with others. Um, and then I, I don't know, I guess the best, the best professional advice that I've ever been given, 
I'm probably going to go with Dan Klein. Everything he's ever told me is the best advice I've ever been given for the most part. Um, but no, he told me this story one time about uh, a little boy walking on a beach. This is, I might cry telling you this story. Um, okay, so he told me this story once. It was a little boy who's walking on the beach with his dad and they're, um, they're picking up seashells. And the whole time they're walking down the beach, he's saying, daddy, I really want to find a starfish. And the dad's like, oh, dude, you're going to find it. You're going to find that starfish. That's so great. And he keeps picking up seashells and he's picking up all these things. He finds rocks and little creatures and things. And they finally get to the end of the beach and they see a starfish. And the little boy looks up at the dad with tears in his eyes and he goes, I don't have any room for the starfish. I found all these other things I wanted. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's like some of the best advice that I've ever gotten is like, know what's a starfish and what's a seashell and know that every seashell you pick up is a starfish you don't have room for later and that can be really heartbreaking because you either got to drop a seashell or leave a starfish and like nobody wants to do either of those things so yeah careful what you do on the walk to what you want i guess is how you you get that crystallized Right on. And I do, I really uh, I also appreciate uh, that it came from Dan Klein. I, it's so, <laughs> it's so wonderful to be able to talk to both of you. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of, kind of jealous when you said uh, World Eye Day also happened, like a conversation with Dan Klein in your kitchen. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, I bet that was a phenomenal conversation. Yeah, Dan and I, we met when he was, um, right when he was in the beginnings of his relationship with, with Richard Saul Werman as his biographer, uh, we met because I was um, one of the producers for a conference that Richard was coming to, and I was throwing a birthday party for Richard as part of the conference festivities. And so Dan and I met in this random way, and yeah, 11, yeah, 11 years later, I still talk to him most weeks and he's still my primary collaborator in terms of like my IA thinking. And I've just grown so much, uh, through our friendship. Like, I feel like he's, um, he's always seen me like in a way that I don't even think I saw myself at the very beginning. So yeah, Dan, if you're listening to this, which you <laughs> probably are. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Abby, thank you so much for uh, not only taking the time here, but to your contributions to the IA community. I, I really appreciate it, but it was uh, extra special that you you took the time out to chat with us on the podcast today. Well, Matt, I, I cannot thank you enough for bringing me on. I, I think this has been a really fun, nerdy chat. And I will say right back to you, thank you for everything you do for the IA community, because, man, the list is long of your accomplishments and things that you brought here, too. So, so thank you.